Hello, everybody, and welcome to Women in the Word. I'm so happy to see you today. My name is Amy Foster. It's my privilege to serve on the Women in the Word teaching team. And for the next couple weeks, it's my privilege to serve on Team Ephesians. So we've been studying these beautiful letters from Paul. We've just finished our study of the book of Galatians. And today we start with Ephesians. So I want to tell you a little bit about this book. Um, Paul is the author of the book, just like Galatians, but a bit of time has passed since he wrote the letter to the Galatians, probably about 12 years. We believe Ephesians was written around A.D. 60, to between 60 and 62. And if you're very familiar with the life of Paul and you studied Acts with us last year, you'll remember Paul was converted to Christianity by an experience with the risen Lord, and then he went on three missionary journeys proclaiming the gospel. And at the end of that third missionary journey, he goes back to Jerusalem knowing full well that persecution awaits him there. As the gospel is spreading, the Jewish leaders begin resisting that message and resisting the apostles. And as Paul gets back to Jerusalem, he's arrested, he's tried, it's chaotic, it's not reasonable. And in that process, he ultimately appeals to Rome as a Roman citizen. So Paul is sent to Rome under guard. He's kept as a prisoner there for about two years. And it's during that time that he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. I want to tell you a little bit about Ephesus, and Douglas, I can't see you up there. If you'll put that map up for us. There we go. We've looked at this before. You can see Galatia right there kind of in the center to the left or to the west. That whole area is Asia Minor. And Ephesus, there on the coast, is the capital city of Asia Minor. Ephesus was an incredibly important city. It was important politically and educationally, and it was especially an important city commercially. Ephesus was a financial hub, sort of like Wall Street. Um, actually, Ephesus was second only to Rome in the entire Roman Empire in terms of the commerce and the importance. Ephesus was the place where the beautiful temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana was. Um, that was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because it was such a massive display of wealth and beauty. It was actually a repository of wealth. Very expensive things were stored there. The people of Ephesus really drew their identity from the city and the wealth that was associated with that place. So when Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, he uses terms that they will be familiar with. They are financially oriented people, so he speaks to them using financial terms. And if you're not totally on board with the idea that Ephesus really got their identity from commerce and finances and wealth, I want to remind you about two things that happened. Last year when we studied Acts and we studied these missionary journeys, we know Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. And you you might recall it was in Ephesus as the gospel is spreading and people are put, putting faith in Jesus and Paul is doing miracles. It was the local exorcists who wanted to make a little profit from that. And the local exorcists who don't know Jesus try casting demons out of people in the name of Jesus. And do you remember what happened? The demons spoke back. And the demon says, we know Jesus, but who are you? 
All that because they were trying to make money off of the name of Jesus. It was also in Ephesus that that huge riot broke out in opposition to Paul. The whole city came unglued in that riot. But really, it was financial concerns that started that riot. It was the silversmith who was making the idols and selling them, concerned that he would lose his income source if so many people started following Jesus. So he stirs up the whole city and tells them that their identity is being threatened, and the whole city erupts into a mob. Ephesus was a place where people were focused on money. So you're going to hear Paul speaking to them in words that they will understand. I want you to pay attention as we study this book, and you'll hear these words, words like rich and inheritance, redemption, guarantee, down payment, all financial words that have profound spiritual meaning. We know from the, well, we assume from the way this letter is written that it probably was intended to be a circular letter. It wasn't just to go to the church in Ephesus, but it was intended to be shopped around and sent around to the other churches. This letter would help all of the new followers in Jesus understand their new identity. And their new identity was twofold. They had a personal identity because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, and now they have a corporate identity. All of them united together have an important identity and the book is written to help them understand what that is and it's written to help them understand how many amazing spiritual resources God has given to them. A foundational truth in the book of Ephesus comes from the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was building his church all over the ancient world as more and more people were embracing the truth of the gospel. It was all God's work, all Jesus' work, and Jesus is still building his church today. So as we study this book, always keep in your mind, this was God's plan and this was God's work because of Jesus. All right, how many of you remember a time when we didn't do our banking electronically? Do you remember that? All right. You young gals are about to get a little history lesson. We didn't bank electronically. We didn't have debit cards. We had checkbooks and cash. And we couldn't log on and figure out our account status at a moment's notice. Once a month, we received a statement in the mail, and it was our account statement. When I say mail, I mean U.S. Postal Service. A mailman brought it to your house. We call it today snail mail, and here, here's why it was snail mail. The, the time it took for the bank to print that document and tell you what your account statement was, and then send it to the post office, and then the mailman gets it to your house, and there were weekends and holidays in between. By the time you got your bank statement, it could be five, seven, ten days old. And most people had been either spending or depositing in their account during that time. You had to manage that for yourself to know what your true financial condition was. You had to get that statement and have a record of what you had spent since the statement was printed. Well, when I was in college, I'm just going to be honest with you, I struggled with this a little bit. Like so many of my friends, that statement would come and I'd think, look how much money I have to spend. <laughs> and then a week or two later, I'd get a different kind of statement from the bank. <laughs> you know, it was a statement that told me your funds are insufficient. 
you have spent what you don't have. That was a common problem for a lot of people, but I had one sweet friend who erred on the opposite side of that extreme. She was so anxious, she was so worried about overdrawing her account and having insufficient funds that she would always assume that her statement was in error. She would always assume there was less money in her account than there actually was. Even when she'd go in and consider all her expenses, she assumed she didn't have money so she wouldn't make a mistake and day after day month after month she would let great opportunities pass her by always claiming she couldn't afford to participate my friend had money in her account but she lived like a pauper that was her true condition even though she had resources available i think we can do the same thing spiritually i think we cannot trust in the spiritual resources god has given us and when we do that we live like spiritual paupers but god doesn't want that so he wants us to understand what are the resources he's given to us how are they at our disposal and what are we supposed to do with them the first chapter here in ephesians i think is a little bit like an account statement and I think it's educating the new believers in Ephesus and it's educating us what is our true spiritual status what's in our account and what does God want us to do with this he wants us to know that he's made us rich and he's made us free and he wants us to rely on these riches to live in a way that accomplishes his purposes the book opens with language that reads like a psalm, and it's a psalm of praise, and he is blessing God because God has blessed the believers. So I want you to start reading with me in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." I got a little ahead of myself here. I want to point out that he opens this saying it's a message from Paul and it's a message to the saints. It's to the saints in Ephesus and that doesn't mean dead people and it doesn't mean perfect holy people. Saints here means the faithful followers of Jesus. So if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, these words are yours, these riches are yours, these truths are yours. Okay, here in verse 3, uh, Paul is starting right out showing us the status of our account. And the status of your account is you are blessed. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And it says God has blessed us in the past tense. So the past tense means it's already happened. We don't have to pray for it and we don't have to wait for it. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, God has blessed us and he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every single one. So your account is full. It is flesh. Your account has every spiritual blessing and a spiritual blessing means everything you need to enrich and sustain your spiritual life. And I want to stop and focus on that for a minute. Everything, everything you need for your spiritual life, you have already. Not some of it, not part of it, not the first half and you get the next half later. Everything is already yours. That's an incredible truth for us to hold on to. 
It also tells us why we have all of these spiritual blessings. It says he has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. Those two words together are going to be repeated all through this book. You're going to see them 10 times in chapter 1. You're going to see them about 27 times as we look in this book. Those words are really the unifying element to all of this. You are blessed because you are linked to Christ. Your account is linked to his. And that is an amazing blessing. If you were to imagine Christ magnified in heaven with a big, beautiful, glorious robe that stretches out across the expanse of the sky, and you imagine within the folds of that robe, you are there. You are there, tucked in underneath his righteousness and his holiness. That's why you're blessed That's why you have spiritual blessings. Listen to how one writer describes this. Our being in Christ means that the Lord Jesus surrounds and embraces us in his own life. And he separates us at the same time from all outside and hostile influences. That's what it means to be in Christ. And you are there. And I am there. We are already there with all of those blessings. And those blessings are available to us because of our position with him. So that's your account status. It's flesh, it's full, it's abundant, it's every spiritual blessing because you are linked to Christ. And then beginning in four, but verse four, it goes on to start really showing you what your spiritual resources are, what's actually in your account, what you have been blessed with. And it begins with every spiritual blessing there. Um, let me just read this for us, beginning in, sorry, I've lost my place here. Oh, I'm skipping back. In verse 4, it says, the blessings are given to you because God chose you, because he chose you. And that is the first great blessing that we have. It's the great spiritual resource we have. God choosing us before the foundation of the world. And the spiritual theological term for that is the term election. And it means God chooses us for salvation. We are God's choice. Uh, One writer says it's God actually picked us out for himself as his own. And he did it before the foundations of the world. He did it before we could ever earn it or achieve it on our own. He picked us out for salvation. And so we know from this that all of us together, the collection of saints who are following Jesus, We were God's plan from the beginning of time. We were God's plan before he created the world. And his plan for us is clear that he chose us so that we would be blameless and so that we would be holy. But we're sinners, aren't we? So how can we be blameless and holy? It only happens when his grace makes a way for our sin to be covered and his grace makes a way to carry our sin away through the work of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God chooses us for, to be in Christ and to receive salvation, so we are holy and blameless. I think the idea of God choosing us can be an uncomfortable concept. Sometimes it doesn't seem fair with our human perspective of fairness. But in all of God's interaction with man, we see this pattern of God 
choosing. We see it first with Abram. God chooses Abram and has enters this covenant relationship with him. Then we see it with Israel. He chooses Israel to be his nation, the place where he would dwell. And he says, it's not because you're more numerous. It's not because you're powerful. It's not because you're great. It's just because I choose you. It's God's pattern from the beginning. It continues into the New Testament. When Christ is speaking to his disciples, John 15, 16, he says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. God chooses all the way through the Bible. I think in our American independent spirit, we would prefer to think, oh no, I have considered my choices and I have chosen God. (laughs) And it's an interesting thing. It's a mysterious thing. God works in both of those. God works by choosing and God also works in our free will and our response to God. Um, He chooses and we respond. It's more mysterious for us to cover in a short lecture today, but it is consistent with the scriptures. I've put one verse on your verse sheet that if you'll look really closely, it shows both things working together, both God's choosing and man's responding and replying to God. This is John uh, 6, verse 37, and it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the first blessing, the first great spiritual resource we have is the blessing of being chosen, election. You know, I have a terrible elementary school memory of not being chosen. And you probably all have your own bad memories of not being chosen. At the beginning of every gym class, the gym teacher would choose two team captains. And she would line everybody up and she would say, captains, choose your teams. And you know how this goes. As soon as that started, I started praying, please let me be chosen. Please let me be chosen. Because you all know how it works. Those captains start choosing and they start with the biggest and the strongest and the most athletic. And they go down the line. And when I was in the room, it always ended up with a short, wimpy, curly-headed girl who was probably wearing a dress and cute shoes, even though it was a gym day. I was always the last, and I was never chosen. And if you were the last, here's what you know about that. You never did get chosen. This terrible thing happens when you're the last one left. The team captain who's left with the last choice just sort of gestures his head, like, come on over here with us. Or worse... He just, in disgust, turns and walks towards his team. And you have to pitifully follow along behind him, knowing that you've never been chosen. And it's an awful feeling, and we've all had it in some part of life, some other version of that. Now, this is just my opinion. It's only my opinion. I think we each have a deep, abiding desire to be chosen. But it's not because we want to be on the team. I think we have a deep abiding desire in our heart because we want to be chosen by God. That's what we want. And I think we direct that desire to other things all the days of our lives instead of directing it to God. But God chooses his own. And when he chooses you, it's a profound blessing and it's a spiritual resource. Verse 5 says he predestined us. He predestined us for adoption. So predestination is your next spiritual blessing. Predestined literally means to mark out for before, beforehand, to mark out 
for adoption. Um, it's even the root word for a mark on your skin, psoriasis. Okay, So predestined is marked out in advance. God predetermined before we were ever born that we would be adopted. And the, the emphasis in this idea of predetermination is the goal. It, the emphasis is on adoption. That's what he predetermined for us. Adoption means you will be adopted as a full-fledged child of God, not as an orphan, not as a stepchild, none of that. Adoption means full-fledged adoption. You are marked out for adoption. So I want to explain this predestination idea going back to my childhood memory of PE, gym class. There was one circumstance when I didn't pray desperate prayers about being chosen. Every now and then, my best friend would be selected as the team captain. And when your best friend is selected as the team captain, you put your shoulders back and you stand kind of proud with this knowledge, I have already been chosen. I have been predestined for the team. And it's not because I'm athletic or powerful or have anything to offer to this team. I've been predestined to be on that team because she looks at me as a friend. That's predestination. And it happens because of grace. We don't deserve it and we don't earn it. It's all grace. God's plan from the beginning is to mark you out as one who would be adopted into his family. And that comes to you because of the riches of his grace. And in response to that grace, it will overwhelm you and you will turn and you will reply to God and you will be in Christ forever. It's a huge blessing. All right, I want us to keep reading. Uh, we're going to begin here in verse 7. It begins with those important words, in him. It's talking about Christ here. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That passage we just read in the original language is one long sentence. And I know it's tricky and I know it's challenging with all those phrases strung together, so we're going to take it apart a little bit here. It's already showed us that God graciously intended that we would be chosen and predestined and adopted as sons, and now it shows us the work that Christ did on our behalf to actually set that plan in motion. The first thing we have, the first blessing, is redemption. Again, and you need to recognize this is a financial term, redemption. We have redemption through his blood. To redeem is to buy something back or to purchase something from bondage or slavery. It's to purchase freedom. This idea of redemption would be readily understand and understood in Ephesus 
The slave trade was uh, a reality for them. They understood the idea of purchasing someone out of slavery. And they also understood something very important. Redemption never comes freely. Never. There always was a price to be paid. There always was something valuable that had to be exchanged when you were redeeming someone from slavery. 1 Peter 1.18 on your verse sheet. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul tells us we have been redeemed and we have been purchased and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, we learned in Galatians that Christ purchased our freedom from the law. We didn't have to continue to submit to the Jewish law to earn our salvation. And the rest of the scriptures, we understand he also purchased our freedom from sin and sin's penalty. And he purchased our freedom from Satan and from death. This redemption, this purchase, results in the next blessing. And you see it here in your text. The next blessing is forgiveness. Forgiveness is also a financial term. Forgiveness means canceling the debt that is owed. That's what it means in the financial world. In the spiritual world, it's bigger, it's richer. It means canceling the debt, and it also means carrying the debt far, far away, as far as the east is from the west. So if you remember, God's call from the beginning was you have been chosen to be holy and blameless Well, holy and blameless is only possible if your sins are forgiven. And God's dealing with men from the beginning. For the forgiveness of sins to occur, the shedding of blood must also occur. We have the whole Old Testament system set up where there was a process of taking animals and shedding their blood, giving their life, placing them on an altar to pay for sins. And it had to happen over and over and over again. Hebrews 9.22 says, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But praise be to God, Christ shed his blood once, only once, once and for all, to purchase and redeem his followers, and not just to cancel their debt, but to carry that debt far, far away. So our redemption and our forgiveness are only possible first because of God's plan, and then second because of Christ's work on our behalf. And then it tells us, all of these great gifts so far, they come to us because of the abundance and the riches of God's grace. Listen to those words, abundance and riches there. It says he lavishes grace on us, and that literally means smothers us. He smothers us with grace. He doesn't give in a stingy way or a miserly way or even a cautious, conservative way. He gives generously. He gives Lavishly, I think we need to take a few moments and, and come to terms with that. That is grace. It is generous and it's lavish. We've talked about it a lot the last few weeks. Grace means undeserved favor. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You can't achieve it on your own. It's just favor that you don't deserve. It's the kindness of a holy God towards sinful people. That's grace and we receive it. But then there's a little bit bigger version of grace. There's another aspect of grace that is enabling. Meaning, through grace, God allows his power and his strength and his wisdom to work through us. He gives us access. He imparts those things to us. 
all because of grace. And so in this instance, grace actually enables us to understand or to comprehend God's will. It allows us to understand what God is doing in the world at this time that he, he has never revealed this before. It calls it a mystery. It's been mysterious and no one has understood it, but now grace gives the insight to see what God is doing. And what he is doing is this. He is uniting all things to Christ. All things united to Christ. He's showing him there's a right now reality to this and there's a distant future reality to this. One day, God will bring every single thing into submission to Jesus. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, and everything below. One day, all those things will bow their knee and proclaim Jesus as king. That will happen one day. To unite is to bring things together. That's what God will be doing, bringing things together through Christ. The opposite of that is tearing things apart. Sin tears things apart. And we first see sin doing this in the garden with Adam and Eve. They sin, and first their relationship with God becomes damaged, and then their relationship with each other and all of creation becomes damaged, and that tearing apart has continued every day since then. But God is saying the mystery is this. One day, through Christ, he's bringing everything back together. First, Christ will unite us back to God, by purchasing our forgiveness, by redeeming us. And then Christ is going to reunite all of us to each other as his body, all of us who profess faith in Jesus. We bend our knee, we proclaim him as Lord, and we submit to him. One day, in the fullness of time, every single person and thing will bow to Jesus. I'd love for you to look at Philippians 2, verse 9 on your verse sheet. This is describing that day. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that great day hasn't happened yet, but God tells us it's coming and it will be God's kingdom here on earth. But I want you to remember when Jesus came and walked among us, he said the kingdom of God has come. He said, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. And here's what that means. A little bit of that kingdom exists here and now. All of us who put our faith in Jesus, united together, we're already bowing our knee we're already proclaiming his, him as Lord. We are already submitting our lives to him. We are this little glimmer of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. And it's described as like a little bit of heaven breaking through into this earth right now. That is the great mystery of God. And it will happen one day, but part of it is happening right now in all of us. Verse 11 goes on to say that this new position that you have in Christ has also gained an inheritance for you. Because you're adopted as full-fledged sons, that also means that your inheritance is full-fledged. And what a great inheritance it is. What we all inherit is life in heaven with God forever. It's eternal. It is our forever eternal inheritance. And this life with God in heaven will be completely free from sin's power and sin's presence. And it will be completely free from Satan's power and presence. And completely free from death's power and presence. 
Death, where is thy sting? And grave, where is thy victory? Not with us, not in heaven with God. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, And so we will always be with the Lord. Always. That is the inheritance for all of us, both for those who were the hope, the first to put their hope in Christ, and for you also. You may have noticed he says those who were the first, and then also you also in verse 12 and 13. When he says those who were first, he's talking about Jewish Christians. You remember when we studied Acts, the Christian church was birthed in Jerusalem among the Jews. That's where the message of Jesus was first preached. And then God expanded it to include the Gentiles. So he's saying both here have the inheritance, both the Jews who first believed and then the Gentiles. When it says you also believed, it explains kind of the order and the process. First you heard the gospel, then you believed. And all of you receive an inheritance, and then you also are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. That happens at the moment we believe. So that's the next blessing. That's the next great spiritual resource we have, the Holy Spirit sealing us. And think of the financial terms here. The Holy Spirit is described as your down payment, your pledge, your guarantee, your deposit. Think about how we use those words today. We talked about this quite a bit last week. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is the third person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we're told that the moment we believe, God's Spirit comes into us, indwells us, makes his home in us. God's Spirit stays with us, helps us to understand God, helps us to follow Jesus God's spirit stays with us as a guarantee. John 14, 16, this is Jesus talking. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So the Holy Spirit comes to the believer straight from God. The Spirit helps the believer understand and obey. And the Holy Spirit also works as a guarantee, guaranteeing our inheritance, sealing our inheritance. A seal also, I mean, a financial word used to communicate authenticity. Oftentimes a king or a ruler used a seal. It showed approval. It showed authority. It showed security. It showed finality. A seal meant forever. The inheritance is that we'll be with God forever. And then God's spirit dwelling in us right now is like the down payment, assuring us of the thing that's to come. Um, a deposit is a valuable thing that's left in trust, ensuring that the next valuable thing is going to be delivered. Those are financial terms. But spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit is in put in us to remind us that we are God's and that he never leaves us and to remind us that one day we will receive that inheritance and we will be with him forever. That's the blessing we have in the Holy Spirit. All right, he's listed these seven great blessings, seven great resources, all given freely, given extravagantly. He's listed all this to show us that we are rich. And then he tells us in all of this, there's one purpose for God giving you all these things. He repeats this purpose three times in those verses. It's to the praise of God's glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God bless us? 
Why does he fill our accounts this way? So that his glory and his grace will be proclaimed. It's not about us. It's always about God being glorified. You know, it's interesting to think we serve a God who wants to be known. He wants to show us who he is over and over again. Beginning with the creation of the earth. When he created the heavens and the earth, he showed us he is powerful. He put his power on display. When he created the church, us together, he puts his grace on display. That's absolutely what he's doing here. If you think about it, God described himself as a God of mercy and grace. And then in the person of Jesus, he continued to put grace on display in his life and in his work. And now his grace is on display in all of us, united together as we live out our new identity. That's God's purpose. So if you think of Ephesians 1 as your spiritual account statement, I want you to know it's better than any bank statement you'll ever receive. Because those bank statements, they just tell you what you have but they don't tell you what you're supposed to do with it. They don't tell you how to manage your resources. This does. This tells us why you have these things. You are to be the praise of his glorious grace. You personally, you are to be the praise of his glory. That means individually, you live with the character of a person who is in Christ. And collectively, all of us together, We live with the character of a person who's in Christ. We live united together in a way that displays grace to the world. And when we do, God is glorified. When God shows us who he is, when he reveals himself, the only response is glory. That's why he gives us these grace, these gifts. So if we're talking in financial terms, here's what we have so far. We know our account status We know our resources, and we know our goal. And the next thing we need to know is how do we manage all these resources? What do we do with all these resources in order to accomplish the goal of glorifying God? Grace has given us all these gifts, but now faith must cooperate. Faith must cooperate with grace and help us put these blessings to work. You could read this statement and keep right on living as if none of this were real, as if you didn't possess any of these riches. You could do that and you would live your life as a spiritual pauper. God doesn't want that for you. Paul doesn't want that. So they explain these gifts and then they ask us to apply faith so that we can use these gifts in our lives. Paul prays a prayer, and I think it's a prayer that they will not live like paupers, but they will live like those who are spiritually rich. Let's read this together. It begins in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's chief prayer here is that they will know God personally and intimately. That will be the secret to help them not live as paupers, to know God personally and intimately. And knowing God certainly means knowing facts about him, but the word for know that's used here means intimate experiential knowledge. Intimate knowledge, the way you know your family members, the way you know someone because you've drawn close to them and you've stayed close to them and you've lived with them and you've abided with them. That's the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. This intimate and profound knowledge of God would guide them. It would help them apply faith to the grace they have already received. And it would give them knowledge about three truths in their life. And these truths all come from these great Blessings. The first truth he wants them to understand and know, he wants them to know the hope to which God has called you. The hope to which he's called you. Hope is the thing you trust in or you aspire to. Hope is the thing you place your confidence in. And he's saying, where is your hope? Your hope is in God. God who chose you. God who predestined you. God who adopted you. God who made that decision before the creation of the world. And then God who accomplished that decision by Christ's work on the cross. And then God who guards and seals and protects that decision by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. As a result of all of that, God has set you free from sin's ultimate penalty. That is your hope. God has set you free from that. God has given you a new identity. He took your old identity, a sinner, separated from God, and he gave you a new one, and he replaced it. Faith must handle that kind of wealth correctly. Faith handles the new identity correctly. Instead of struggling and striving for another identity, instead of struggling to reach the top of the corporate ladder or get the next promotion or struggling and striving to have the most successful children or struggling and striving to be the most beautiful, the thinnest, the most successful, the funniest, the most articulate, why would we expend our energies pursuing any other identity when God has given us one and he's told us you are daughters of the Most High King? You are chosen. You are predestined. You are adopted. You are redeemed and forgiven and guarded forever. You're my child. That's who you are. That's what you put your hope in. And you don't spend your energy trying to create any other identity but that. That's how you manage that wealth. The next thing he prays is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. An inheritance is being kept and guarded, and one day we will receive it when we go to heaven to be with God. When that happens, God will set us free forever from sin's presence. He will set us free from sin's presence. We know that God is holy. He doesn't tolerate the presence of sin. So when we go to be with him, sin will not be there. 
God has told us that. Jesus says he's gone there to make a place for us, to prepare that place for us, and he's coming back to take us. That is our inheritance. But there's more to this. We are actually an inheritance also. We are an inheritance that God receives. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We are a people for God to possess. We are God's inheritance, and one day we will be given to him. And it will be the same way a bride is given to a groom. So how does faith handle that kind of wealth correctly? I think faith prepares for that day, the way a bride prepares for her wedding day. Does a bride prepare to be radiant and beautiful and joyful? We can prepare the same way to be radiant and beautiful and mature and complete on the day that God receives us. And we can help this body, this group of believers, we can help each other be radiant and beautiful and mature and complete for the day that God is going to receive us. We aren't earning our salvation. God has already given it to us because his grace is rich and abundant, but we are responding to it. We're responding to it, and we are preparing ourselves for it. We work with God. We participate in the sanctifying work he does in our lives so that slowly we become a little bit more like Jesus. And on the day that he receives us, we will be mature and beautiful and radiant. That's how we handle that wealth, I think. Last, Paul prays that we will know the greatness of his power toward all of us who believe. The power, the greatness of his power that he's given to us. He goes on to detail how great that power is. He says it's great enough to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at the right hand of God above everything. And it's great enough to take everything else and put that below Jesus in submission to him. And it's great enough to unite all of us together and put Jesus over us as our savior and our leader and our head That's quite a bit of power. And that power is available to us because we are in Christ. It's all available to us. With this power, God has set us free from sin's power. And this isn't one day. This isn't in the future. This is now. God has set us free from sin's power now. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. God's power works in us, but that is a wealth that has to be managed. It has to be managed correctly. And to manage it correctly, you cannot believe the lie That sin is just too much for me. I just can't resist that one. I'm never going to get that part of my life under control. God's power toward you, working in you, means sin is no longer the greatest power in your life. God's power is greater. So how do we manage that? We live like it is true. Live like that is true. Isaiah 52.1 says, Wake up. Put on your strength. Put on a beautiful garment. 
And I think what God is saying here, I have given you power. It's a beautiful garment. I have hung it in your closet. Just go put it on. Put it on and believe that his power works in you. God has given you this blessing. One writer said, what good is that power if we don't rely upon it? What good is electric lighting if we don't flip the switch? Okay? That's how faith cooperates with that grace that God has given us. Put on the power and choose to live like this is true. All these blessings are already ours. They are already in our account. God has done everything to provide them for us. We don't have to pray for them and we don't have to wait for them. We have to use faith to work with them because they're ours. This is our statement. It's showing us all of our spiritual resources. The statement says we're rich, we're not paupers, but we have to choose to live like this is true. As God's power is being described here in these very last few statements, it mentions for the very first time the word church. And church in this form, that's the first time it's presented this way. When it says that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. We started out saying he's writing to show them their new identity. Their new identity is individual and their new identity is corporate. We are the church. The believers in Ephesus were the church. All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are his church and he is our head. God never said, you're my person, you're my person. He said, you're my people. You're my people. His identity for us is a collective identity. He's given us to each other to be his church and he's done it so we would reveal God's grace to the world. Within the church, there are many blessings, there are many resources, there are many riches. The church is full because God chose to do these things for you and Jesus made that possible. The church is full and that's how we live. We are rich. We just have to apply faith and live like it. Okay, let's pray. God, our thanks are inadequate for all that you've done for us and we are overwhelmed by your grace, and we are overwhelmed to be recipients of your grace, so we stop and we thank you for all that you've given us. And we thank you for these gifts, we thank you for these riches, and we thank you that you've given us each other, that you haven't asked us to do this alone. Lord, so my prayer is that we could each grow in our faith and we could know how to rely on these great resources that you've given us. And my prayer is that we would live like all of these things are true and that your grace would be revealed in our community and in our lives. And Lord, that you would be glorified. That's the desire of our heart, and we ask for your help. We ask that you increase our, our faith so that we can make these things a reality and that you would be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.